Good afternoon. I have come here to chew bubble gum and punch Nazis. <laughs> and I'm all out of bubble gum. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where there's never a bad time to throw in a Blazing Saddles reference. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi, folks. My name is Sean Ingle, and it's my job on the show to cover the Green Lantern comics, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns. I'm looking at this Skype icon, and now I can't stop thinking of Chip. <clears throat> Today on the show, we're going to be covering two comics. As we've been doing the past couple of episodes, we're going to be covering the Green Lantern Annuals. And this time, it's not a Bloodlines Annual, thankfully. It's Green Lantern Annual number three, which was part of the Elseworlds crossovers. And this time, it's, uh, well, it's kind of different. The Green Lanterns are part of Nazi Germany. Yeah, so uh, if you're ready for some uncomfortable uh, talk about Nazism and that sort of thing, well, yeah, that's what we're going to be covering. However, we're also going to be covering the second part of the Burning and Effigy storyline in Green Lantern number 114, where the character of Effigy, the Firestorm wannabe from outer space, takes on Kyle in basically a fight in downtown Hollywood. Plus, we find out who those strange aliens who've been doing all the experimentation on the douchebag hipster from uh, Seattle uh, find out, you know, who those aliens actually were. Hint, hint, it's the controllers. <laughs> like, like you couldn't have, you couldn't have figured that out anyway. But to come on the show to help me out cover these, covering these comics this time out, I've got my very good friend who is the host of, well, the host of Thrilling Adventures of Superman, the purveyor of the website Siegel Schuster Mythmakers at GrapeCrypton.com, but predominantly the host of the Superman Batman podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I am very proud to have back on the show Mr. Michael Bradley. Hey, Michael, how's it going? Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming on the show, and uh, hopefully we won't get too bogged down in the whole, you know, Nazi Germany thing going here. Well, I do love talking about Nazis. Mm-hmm. Well, and, Fire, and Firestorm knockoffs. Yeah, well, and um, that's that's the primary reason why I had you on the show. I knew <laughs> those those were pretty much your favorite characters in all of comicdom. So here coming we are. Soon, coming soon, the Firestorm knockoff Nazi podcast. <laughs> oh, Shag and Rob Kelly will be jumping. But uh, if that's all we have to say as preamble, I'm going to go ahead and say we take a little break, throw a couple of promos in here, possibly one from Mr. Bradley's show, and as soon as we get back, we'll get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 114. 
coming soon on Two True Freaks. Beware the beast man. A month-long celebration. For he is the devil's pawn. Of one of the greatest science fiction series. Alone among God's primates. Of all time. He kills for sport or lust or greed. Covering all the films. Let him not breed in great numbers. For he will make a desert of his home and yours. All the comic books. Shun him. The toys. Drive him back into his jungle lair. The entire phenomenon that was. For he is the harbinger of death. The planet of the apes. Planet of the apes. A month-long event. Coming soon. Only at twotruefreaks.com. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go! Up! Up! And away! Atomic Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. And ladies and gentlemen, we are back to take a look, as always, at a Green Lantern comic, this time number 114. It was cover dated July 1999 and released on May 2nd, May 12th, sorry, of 1999. This information, of course, comes from the ever-awesome Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Go check it out. The cover price was $1.99 US and $3.25 Canada, and the title was Burning an Effigy Part 2. The writer was Ron Mars, and the pencilers this time out were George Genty and Ron Lim. Inker was Terry Austin, Colors and Separations, Rob Schwager, Letterer Willie Schubert, Burned Harvey Richards and Toast Kevin Dooley. Getting tired of these. <laughs> I I like the the funny credits. Okay, well then then you you can be the one who can like them this time. Okay, all right. Our story opens with a scene eerily reminiscent of Kyle and Alex sitting on the beach watching a falling star from issue forty eight. However, this time out, the falling star actually crashes near the Blue Panthers, and the falling star also happens to be Green Lantern Kyle Rayner fresh from being blasted out of the sky by his newest foe, Effigy. Telling the bathers to run, Kyle asks the approaching Effigy why he's doing this. Effigy gives the simple reply, Because I can. This smug reply gives Kyle impetus to douse the flaming foe with a ring construct water cannon. Extinguishing his flames, Kyle shackles Effigy and tries to get to the bottom of what's going on with him. Effigy explains the alien abduction, which left him like this, and now that he has these amazing powers, he's ready to use them on all the people he felt gave him grief in the past. 
starting with Green Lantern. And with that, the Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, is on. The two throw various constructs back and forth, fight with various weapons and energy blast, eventually ending in a giant explosion that knocks both parties back. Cow once again tries to offer a helping hand to his foe, but Effigy again refuses, saying he is who he is and he's going to take Green Lantern down. Cow relents to Effigy's decision, but lets him know that he's not going up against a single Green Lantern, but an entire tradition. And in an awesome splash page, Cow rings up the constructs of the Earth Lanterns that he's upholding the legacy of, and has him beat the ever-loving shit out of Effigy. Having severely trounced the Firestorm wannabe, Cal is stopped from taking him into custody by the arrival of the alien spacecraft that abducted Barton in the first place. In a Spielbergian beam of light, the aliens, now shown to be the controllers, come out to collect their unfinished experiment for some more probing. I mean, training. Yes, training. Leaving Kyle to ponder the miserable matchhead's fate. Some time has passed. And Kyle, John, Guy, and Alan, and Jade are meeting up at the Warriors Bar to discuss the goings on. Kyle asks John about the controllers, and John tells them that they are the right wing version of the Guardians of the Universe. Kyle asks if they have anything to worry about Effigy causing any problems, and Guy says that with the controllers being cousins to the Guardians, you shouldn't put much trust in them. This is made readily apparent as we cut to the controller spaceship, where the pink skinned antagonists have Effigy on their science altar presumably for some more probing, because they can. And there we go with issue number 114. Michael, do you have any uh, general notes on this? Just that I was really impressed and and pleased that this issue, um, despite being part two of a two-part story, stood pretty pretty well on its own. I mean, with just a few minor points, it could have been a story that just started in media res. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. You really didn't have to read the uh, the prior issues or even the issue in front of it to really know what's going on. It's, it's generally a fight and there's enough explanation of who the character was and what was going on with him that you don't feel lost. You don't feel like you've just been dropped into something that you don't have any knowledge of what's going on with. So yeah, I, I, I enjoy it that way as well. I, I personally enjoyed the fact that Ron Lim and George Genty are on the artwork because over the past couple of issues, in fact, for the longest time, I've been just kind of down on the artwork with uh, Daryl Banks and Terry Austin. I don't know. I don't think they meld very well together, but Genty and Lim, along with Austin's ink, look uh, look a lot better. And there's a lot of good artwork here in the book, so I'm I'm yeah. chewing a lot more. Uh, yeah, I, re- I really like George Genty. He mm-hmm. did some he did some Superman work around this time, and mm-hmm. he wasn't the best fit for that character, but uh, he really works for Green Lantern. Yeah, I uh, I I think I first encountered him uh, back a while back when Charlie Niemeyer came on the show and we did the uh, Green Lantern Superboy crossover and he mm. did 
uh, the artwork in the Superboy book, and it was uh, it was incredible. It was really good stuff. Taking a look at the cover, I really like the the lack of inking on on the cover. Uh, just sort of the rough pencils and the coloring on the uh, construct that Effigy is doing of that dragon really give it a kind of a unique design. I like that. Do you want to just go page by page from here? Yeah, if you want to. My first note is actually about the the opening sequence. So. Yep. Yeah, the same here. It's it's essentially it's essentially a ripoff. Well, not really a ripoff, but an homage to the issue forty eight where we first get quote unquote introduced to Kyle and Alex. It's pretty much the same. It's not exactly the same stance, and the characters look a little different. But it's it's played so close that you can tell that that's what they're trying to get at. Yeah, I didn't even pick up on it until you mentioned it, but. I think it's definitely a reference back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just thought it was a really nice attention grabber. Um, I hate to compare it to a TV show, but you can imagine, you know, these three pages being the cold open. Kyle says run, and then the theme music hits, and then the, mm-hmm. the episode begins proper with page four. Oh, yeah. Well, and I like the little humorous note at the top of page three there, you know, with the with Kyle standing. It's sort of wily Coyote laying in this crater and the little <laughs> caption balloon of just, oh. Yeah, you know it's it, it, it. Ron Mars has got the character down, and he can really do no wrong with the character, in my opinion, anymore. I mean, he's he's got the voice of him down. He's not he's not the character that he started out with. He's confident, but you know he's able to take the the situations that he gets into seriously, but have fun with it at the same time. So I yeah. like that in this in this little scene. I don't really have anything until uh, around the middle of the book, around page eight. It's a just what, it's kind of a big fight scene. Yeah, what you said actually leads into my next note, which is on page eight, and that it's interesting that even after more than fifty issues, Kyle still seems to be coming to terms with his role as Green Lantern. Only now, instead of fighting the idea of whether or not he's worthy of the ring, he's he's more coming to terms of of where he fits in the broader. Green Lantern and superhero landscape and, and wondering if that's necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's, you know, built upon later on in the issue where he where he realizes or uses the legacy of the Green Lantern characters or the Green Lantern core to basically embolden him and empower him. That gives right. him the edge over Effigy, who's got essentially sort of the same power set, able to create uh, sort of energy constructs. But, you know, since Kyle has this legacy behind him, that gives him, I don't know, more of a, I'm trying to think, just more of a reasoning for his being this hero. Yeah. And I I don't think that Kyle of 50 issues ago would have been asking himself these questions either. So I definitely like the sense we get that Kyle is maturing as a person and a hero. Mm -hmm. Page 10 is the next note that I have. Mm-hmm. And again, it's the lack of inking here on the constructs that I think really works well. And, yep. and, and it looks like just sort of uh, good pencils. I've got to assume this is by Genty because Genty does a lot more detailed stuff and the dog with the coloring, it's all just really nice. I like it. And the facial expressions on the dog's really cool. Yeah. It really helps when, the different style of inking or the lack of inking on the constructs really helps set them apart from the the physical objects in the in the frame. Yes, very much so. My next note's not till page thirteen, so Yeah, same here. Okay. Uh page thirteen, I like that Kyle is 
trying to talk this guy down. I mean, in panel four, he's literally offering him a helping hand. Mm-hmm. So this this isn't just a 22-page slugfest. Kyle's actually trying to resolve things peacefully and, and help Effigy maybe turn his life around. Well, and again, that that goes to what we were saying earlier about the growth of Kyle's character. That throughout throughout his career, he used to be, you know, just fight these people and beat them up and take them out. But he's grown such as a character that he knows that fighting isn't the way that you resolve things. And even though he's up against this person who only seems to want to fight him, Kyle's Kyle's whole reasoning is let's try and work this out. So it, right. it just shows how much of a how much growth that we he's had as a character. Right. Definitely. But uh then the next page, uh page fourteen. Beautiful. Oh yes, that's just you know, Kyle you know, standing there, pointing his finger at FG, and the the sort of ghostly energy images of the Green Lanterns of Earth behind him. It's just great. They all look great. Yeah. Kyle's face looks a little weird, but it's a great page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll admit, his face looks a little sort of bulky, but, uh, but it's just a really wonderful splash. This would be a great... You know, if 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 they made like posters of this, I think this would be a great poster to show the sort of legacy of the Green Lanterns at the time. Mm-hmm, it's definitely. a really good job. And there's even a little Kyle nipple for the ladies. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, yeah, I haven't really touched on this, but I know that a lot of female comic book readers really enjoyed the Green Lantern book at this time. Simply because Kyle was drawn as sort of this sort of sexy, you know, twenty something, thirty something guy. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I don't doubt that, you know, that might have been a little bit of something out there for the ladies. So there you go. Um the next page, page fifteen, with the with Kyle using the constructs of various lanterns to take out effigy to just pummel him. Yeah. It, it's great. Of course, Hal uses the giant boxing glove. <laughs> I like I like Alan using the sort of oh it's not uh who did in the mood I'm trying to you know the Trump Gershwin? Uh, Gershwin? no no um I I it's the it's the jazz trombone player I can't remember his name it's slipping Glenn Miller Glenn Miller that's right looks like Glenn Miller hitting effigy with his trombone slide and then guy just ringing up a female barbarian character and they all look great it's just it's just a great way to show that kyle is part of a legacy that he has these characters to draw his strength from and that he's using them to take down this this sort of jerkweed character i love it yeah yeah i like them reinforcing the idea that family and friends or, or whatever are important um not to shamelessly plug but i recently did a an episode um, just to say happy birthday, Batman. And in the episode, I had some interludes, which were basically just me kind of, you know, stream of consciousness rambling about various aspects of Batman. And, and one of the conclusions I came to was that Batman needs his family, whether it be Robin or Batgirl or Alfred or whoever, because they they act as a tether and a support structure. And without them, he'd be a very different person. Mm-hmm. So I liked them bringing up the history and legacy going you know, all the way back to Alan Scott and having that play a big part in making Kyle who he is. Well, and yeah, and you would think that 
it's a perfect explanation that Batman alone by himself is far would become far too dark and far too grim mm-hmm. a character. He needs those those bright, caring family members to keep him, for lack of a better term, grounded. To right. keep him from just going down that dark path and becoming a person, an unlikable person, and a person who probably is not fulfilling the need that he wanted to do when he decided to take his war against crime. Right. Now, with with Kyle having this family of Green Lanterns behind him, it does give him a sort of sense of you know his his importance in his importance as a Green Lantern. So yes, I agree. the The family aspect of this book is one of the things I really like about it, and I think it's. I've been listening to some of the Lantern cast, uh, Chad Bokeman and Mark mm-hmm. Marvel, and they've been talking about the uh, the recent Green Lantern comics and New Fifty Two. And one of the things they've been complaining about is the lack of this sort of sort of quiet downtime and this family yeah. type thing. And that kind of disappoints me because it. I know we want action in our comic books, but what I loved about this era of comics in general and uh, the Green Lantern books in specific was that we had these kind of downtimes where the characters would just go to the Warriors bar and talk or in the Superman books where it would be where it'd be issues of just Clark and Lois doing things. It didn't have to be, you know, giant alien invasions or, you know, uh, people losing all their ring powers or whatever, you know, it, these little moments are what make these books great. And it's part of this time that I'd like DC to sort of, I wish DC would sort of bring that back into the books. Yeah. There's, there's just not that richness Mm -hmm. in the new 52. And that's not, I'm not trying to, you know, criticize the new 52 because I know there's a lot of people out there that enjoy it, but it, to me, it does feel like they're, they're missing that deeper, Richness is is the best word I can think of to describe mm-hmm. it with the with the family of characters and the the more personal side. It's not just all action, action, action. Yeah, and, and sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need a time to decompress and the time to just have a one off issue where you're not fighting a big bad and you're not having to save the world and all this. You know, right? That's what makes the that's what makes good storytelling. Before we move on, I just want to point out for those who don't have the issue in front of them. When we talk about Guy, uh, the hologram of Guy, it, it's the Justice League International era with the bowl cut and the Green Lantern ring and the, the big jacket with the collar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not the uh, modern guy right. know, or, the, or the then modern guy with the uh, sort of spiky hair and the, still the uh, Voldarian powers, but is the Green Lantern version of Guy. But it looks good nonetheless. Yeah. So whoever, oh, yeah. whoever drew this, either Lim or Genty, did a good job. I think – it's pretty much all genty until the last few pages. Yeah, I could probably buy that. We get the reveal of the aliens, and of yes. course, yes, it's the controllers who are like the the right wing. Like I said, the right wing guardians in the universe who used to be the uh, they were the force behind the dark stars. They are basically the the guardians for the dark stars book. So John has some experience with them, but. It'll be interesting to see how the FG character plays out in the rest of the Green Lantern books because I know he comes back later, and uh, we'll see, you know, what his character is. But you know, having the having the uh, controllers in the book also plays into the whole Green Lantern being a part of the larger universe. At the as the controllers were 
sort of an offshoot of the Guardian. So I enjoyed mm-hmm. that part. Yeah. I, I don't really have much to say about these pages. I kind of, once the controller showed up, I kind of tuned out. Yeah. Until, until we get to the scene with at the Warriors Bar. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I like the scene at the Warriors Bar. Um, I think this is, yes, where Lim comes in and does the artwork because the art looks a little bit different. Oh, yeah. Guy on page 21 on that sixth panel there, I know they're trying to draw him <laughs> a bit beefier, but he just looks kind of off. He looks far, you know, I always pictured Guy as in football kind of running back, and then uh-huh. he looks more like a linebacker. He looks more beefy. Everybody, yeah. you know, that's kind of how he was drawn in the. Bo Smith, Guy Gardner, Warrior stuff. So, oh, yeah, whatever. But uh, it ends with, you know, the controller is going to be doing some more experiments on this guy. So, yay. Good luck for them. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have the uh, actual paper issue in front of you? Or I do. Okay. It's in my hands. Do you want to uh, check out some of the ads in here? Just... Sure. Okay. At the beginning, uh, the front inside cover, uh, we've got the first advertisement that I've seen for the Grand Theft Auto games. Now, these are radically different from the Grand Theft Auto games that we know right now. These are basically top-down games that are just basically car chases that run through city streets. So there's no sort of first-person or third-person shooter type thing. It's just basically drive cars around, you hop out, and you shoot people. It's very... It's it's amazing that the game progressed to what it is nowadays from this. But it, back at the time, it was considered pretty uh, pretty uh, risque or pretty uh, I don't know uh, violent, edgy. I guess. Yeah, edgy. Well, according to the ad, CNN says it makes Boys in the Hood seem like an after-school Disney special. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, uh, CNN is always you know it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, always looking for headlines to make something worse than it possibly ever could yeah. be. I have never played any of the Grand Theft Auto games. I played uh, I played a couple of the top-down ones. I never played any of the more modern ones, like uh, 3 through 5 and Vice City or anything like that. You know, I've heard that they're interesting. I mean, you know, uh, the whole sandbox feel of them where you can do pretty much anything with them is kind of nice. But, eh, never got into them. I, I, I played... I was more of a, oh, what was it? There's another game, Saints Row, that I played on the, on the, that's sort of the same thing, except it's just far more profane, <laughs> if you, if you can imagine that. One of the, uh, one of the mods in the, uh, third game of Saints Row is if you pick your character, you can pick how, um, how well endowed the character is. I, I don't know whether this plays into the game all that much, but you can do that. I can't see how it would, but well, uh, I, if you know anything about the hot chocolate mod in uh, mm. in uh, Grand Theft Auto, yeah, maybe that's part of it. But uh, the next ad they have is one for I don't know what the heck it is. It's some I've seen it before. It's for Time Tremors, some sort of online game where you play a weird anime girl and short shirts and short shorts and a skimpy top. Uh, whatever. It's the nineties. Yep. I'll give it that. Uh, Oh, here's, here's a good one. I talked about this last time. The, uh, Sony, uh, mini disc, the, uh, the product that really went nowhere. 
Do, do you even remember these? I don't. This was, uh, Sony had this product out, and, you know, this was, uh, you know, CDs had been pretty much ubiquitous, and everyone was, you know, releasing stuff on CDs. But the problem was, if you wanted to take the stuff portable, portable CD players just were a draw on the batteries for yeah. that. And plus, if you moved it in any way, shape, or form, it would skip like crazy. So you had to have a CD player that would buffer the thing for, like, 10 to 15 seconds before it would play. So what Sony tried to come up with were these little mini discs, which, you know, were the same as sort of CDs, except it was compressed. And, you know, it's just one of those sort of failed things that just came out before the invention of, you know, the MP3 players. Mm-hmm. You know, well, this was 99. So I guess the MP3 wave was still... It was still because I don't know away. because it wasn't really a, sort of ubiquitous until Apple came out with its you know classic iPod. So. Right. Hmm. The next ad is for PowerAid. It's a really weird. It's like Coca Cola. I think Coca Cola is the brand that does PowerAid, and Coca Cola has yes. been coming out with some weird advertisements for its beverages. So just well, they the, had they were the ones from the. Time Tremors ad earlier. Oh yeah, the, the the that was their cherry coke thing, which was yeah. hip and trendy. For some reason, there's a the middle two page splash is an advertisement for these wonky looking Three Musketeers characters selling the Three Musketeers bar, and it's you know I I hate to say it, I don't recall one of the Musketeers being African American, but you know maybe I just you know maybe I didn't read my Alexander Dumas well enough when I was back then. So, yeah, this is the yeah, this is the nineties. There, we're it's the affirmative action musketeers. There you go. <laughs> they're making sure they're making sure that everyone's uh, represented, which is which oh. is a good thing. Did you read the tagline at the bottom of the ad? Oh no, what's that? <laughs> it's huge, starring fluffy, plumped-up chocolate, filmed entirely in Choco Vision. <laughs> No, that's all pumped up for nonstop action. Ah, uh, that could be for an entirely different I, thing, yep. rather than the Musketeers. Uh. It's the Triple X Musketeers. I guess. <laughs> oh dear Lord, Ugh. don't want to think about that. Um, all for one and one for all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> moving on. There's. There's an advertisement, and you don't really see in the Green Lantern books that many advertisements for uh, musical, for bands or anything. But this is for Atari Teenage Riot. Uh, it, I don't I, have, I, wait. Oh, I entirely skipped over that. Yeah, okay. it's it's uh, it's before the page where the constructs are being mm-hmm. up apogee. Yeah, I I know they're a sort of punk alternative band, but I could not tell you one song that they Me they wrote. So yeah, no idea. After that, Gex 3, another PlayStation video game where you play the predecessor of the Geico Gecko, who's a spy, who's got some girl with overly ample chesticles, you know, sitting on a car, so whatever. Looks really terrible. Yeah, I, I don't remember the game being all that good, but it got three sequ- or it got two sequels, so someone must have been playing it. We get another ad for WSL Roller Jam. Remember when roller hockey was fun? Yeah, neither does anyone else. <laughs> no. 
And the only interesting thing about this was this was uh, on TNN, which at the time was the Nashville network, but eventually morphed into what we would know today as Spike TV. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a bit of you know, nostalgia back there for, for you folks. On the letters page, they've got an advertisement for the Heat Network, which was basically an online gaming network. If you had, like, computer games, I think, like, Unreal Tournament or Quake had uh, Heat installed with them so you could get online and fight against other people on this uh, Heat Network. So if you like to shoot people up online, this was the, this was basically the predecessor to, I guess, the what the Microsoft network or whatever Xbox live. So okay. if that makes any sense, um, if you can th- tell, I was never really a gamer. No, not a problem. Yeah. I, I played a little games, you know, I played, but I was basically a computer. I didn't have after the Sega Genesis, I didn't really have a game system until I got kids and had a Nintendo 64. And then we moved to the Wii and now we've got a, Xbox 360, but, you know, basically the kids still play that. So when you have, you know, or if you ha- ever have kids, you know, you'll be sucked into that. Yeah. The back inside cover is for, I don't know whether this was an actual NASCAR car or just a model of it. it I'm assuming was. it's an actual car. Uh, it's a, a Superman design car. It's got, is that... That's not burn on it. Who who do you think the artist is doing the Superman on the side? It looks like Garcia Lopez. It does, yeah, and that would make sense because praise be his name, because that would be the uh, the person who does basically the Superman for pretty much all the uh, designs out there. Mm-hmm. So. I remember when they announced this, they had, I, I and it might be the drivers they list here at the bottom, but there was a NASCAR, a Sprint Cup, not Sprint Cup. What's what's the like the the B league for NASCAR um, nationwide. Yeah. Is what they call it now. Um, then there was a truck, a truck, a truck race truck, I guess. Yeah. They've got, they say craftsman truck. Yeah. But they were all Superman themed and they ran them all in one race or yeah, couple Je- races. Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. They've got some pretty big names behind this. So Jimmy Vassar for cart drivers. That's kind of neat. Yeah. And then the back outside cover is another ad for Got Milk, except this time it's not the uh, creepy Sarah Jessica Parker one. I think you meant Sarah Michelle Geller and not Ferris Bueller's horse face girlfriend. With uh, a milk mustache, it's it's Tony Hawk because... With a milk mustache. Yeah, because nothing says, you know, hip and trendy than, you know, like a 35-year-old guy on a skateboard. Yeah. But yeah, Tony Hawk, I guess he was popular back then. You know, I was never into the skate culture, so I, I couldn't either. say. But yeah, you know, there you go. Uh, that that was a that was a fun issue. It was a nice wrap up to the whole effigy storyline. I, I like the fact that it's just quick and over with. It's not a prolonged thing, and yeah, I I like that Kyle is you know he he's coming to his own and he's embracing the legacy of being a Green Lantern. I like his character development. Yeah, and it it was basically. A big fight scene, but it didn't read like a big fight scene. No, no, there was a, there was a lot more, uh, and uh, that attributes a lot more to Ron Mars and his dialogue in there, and him writing the character to be more than just a big, visually interesting, punchy punchy fight scene. Yeah, you know, he put he put a lot more depth in the character. So, but uh, unless you have anything else to talk about this book, I say we take a little break and we head on to our next comic. Green Lantern Annual number three. All right. 
Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait. Be right back. I need my Avengers omnibus. Uh, where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email, and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah, sorry, sorry. I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! Ow, put Cap's shield there. (laughs) Anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's, It's on that book, and I can't move it. Dad, where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No! no! Watch out for the repulsor! Ow! Ah! Oh! Ah! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die, They Just Get Reassembled and Sent to Another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover, and who might stop by? So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree-Skrull War, and, oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? (sighs) Hey, wait a minute. This is the Book of the Vashanti. Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. Penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the mole man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You earthlings can't change the way I can. Can't be that the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord. Until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatans. King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak. Blind or hold. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to the drain of all elemental life. So, speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning 
Witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. ffcast.libsyn.com And we are back. This time we're going to take a look at Green Lantern Annual number three. It was cover dated 1994 and released on August 9, 1994. It had a cover price of $2.99 US, $4.25 in Canada, and £2 in the UK. The title was Ring of Evil. The writer was David DeVries, or DeVry maybe? DeVries? I don't know. Penciler was Dean Zachary. Inker was Andrew Peepoy. Colorist was Steve Matson. Letterer was Kevin Cunningham. Assistant editor was Eddie Braganza. And the editor was Kevin Dooley. Elseworlds. In Elseworlds, heroes are taken from their usual settings and put into strange times and places. Some that have existed, or might have existed, or others that can't, couldn't, or shouldn't exist. This is one of them. At the end of the war, Reichfuhrer Himmler brings his 12 personal guards to an ancient castle located in an area known as the Midpoint of the World, an area known for its connections to arcane power. Himmler enters the castle and begins a mystic ritual, summoning a dark being bathed in flames. The entity asks what Himmler desires, and the Reichfuhrer replies to make the dream a reality. Seeing the ring on Himmler's finger, marked with the bolts of Wotan, the Nazi SS symbol, the being tears the souls from Himmler's twelve guards and imbues the ring with their power. Himmler hears the voices of men who sacrificed their lives to give him his power and begins his quest to create a world in his own twisted image. Cut to a time in the not-too-distant future where the champions of the Reich, Major Guy Gardner and Flight Lieutenant Hal Jordan, are being awarded the Iron Cross by Hadi von Bustier. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. As, as the crowd salutes the heroes with a rousing Sig Heil, it's already getting awkward, a cloaked man watch, watches from the crowd. Somehow, Hottie has her attention drawn from her toward the strange figure as he beats a hasty retreat out of the throng of revelers. Later, at a reception for our heroes, Hal and Guy are congratulated by Carol Ferris, who Hal had just recently broken up with. Hal asks Guy if he'd like to get out of here and hit the bars, but Guy declines, primarily because he doesn't swing that way, but mostly because he's got some insurgents to kill. We then cut to a meeting of those insurgents, a group called the Hooded Lanterns of Green, a group of archers led by one Oliver Queen. Tonight, Queen is passing on the leadership role to fellow lantern John Stewart. But before they can celebrate with punch and pie, Guy Gardner and his Gestapo goons crash the party and start shooting up the place. John flees, but not before planting the arrow deep in Gardner's left shoulder. Reeling from the attack, Guy has his men round up the survivors to have them questioned about their new leader, Stuart, whom Guy refers to as a German version of a racial epithet. Meanwhile, at the Ferris Villa, John Stewart arrives and places a passionate kiss on the lips of a very shocked Carol Ferris. We cut away before Carol can find out if it's true if John is gifted, and come across the cloaked man that we saw at the awards rally running through a back alley. Nearby, Hal Jordan hears voices in his head calling him to the same alley. The hooded man reveals himself as Abin Strauss, a one-time adjunct to Himmler, who tells Jordan that he was the one who was calling him here via the voices in Hal's head. But before Abin can explain why he set up this meeting, the duo is beset upon by the demonic beings who demand Strauss hand over the ring. 
Abbott denies their request and blasts away at the beasties, tearing them apart with Hellraiser-like ring constructs, much to the astonishment of Hal. After a quick scene of Guy reporting back to Hottie Bon Bustier, we witness Abbott give the backstory about the ring. Apparently things were going pretty well for Himmler until Hottie Bon Bustier, now known Karelia, used her sorcery and boobies to corrupt Himmler's plans. Sorry, it's pretty apparent. Unfortunately, Abin was able to take the ring to continue the work by Himmler by stabbing him with an iron dagger, the one thing that is the one thing that the ring is immune to. Saying that Hal is the one to fulfill Himmler's dream, Abin passes the ring along to Hal, imbuing him with the power of the Twelve Souls. Of course, once getting this ultimate power, Hal's first thoughts turn to knocking boots with Carol Ferris because if there's one constant in the character of Hal Jordan, it's his complete horndoggedness. Unfortunately, Guy shows up just in time to attempt to cockblock Hal and retrieve the ring for Karelia. Hal responds in a reasoned manner by blasting Guy and his men, killing them, but leaving Guy alive. Hal runs off, and Guy returns to Karelia's palace to undergo a mystical ritual similar to the one that created Himmler's ring. But this time, the souls are of the captured Green Lanterns, and as Karelia completes her enchantment, we witness Guy Gardner as the wielder of the ring that will return the true ring of power to its rightful owner. Over at Ferris Villa, an enraged Hal Jordan bursts in on John, on Carol and John Stewart, enjoying their 15th Schnitzengruppen. Hal is shocked that Carol would sully herself by sleeping with a Schwarz. And Carol's like, come on, it's like the size of a baby's arm down there. Sorry, going there. <laughs> Hal says that with the ring, he could make her do anything that he wanted to, even love him again. But realizing that she's probably been wrecked in her lady parts, Hal flies away from her home. I'm so horrible. <laughs> Carol goes to make sure that John is okay, but before she can make sure that everything is okay, the Green Lantern ring wielding Guy Carter burst in and takes the two prisoners. Sometime later, Hal sees that Guy is taking Carol and burned her property because for a crime of quote-unquote racial pollution. Hal swears vengeance and bursts in on Karelia's palace where Guy is busy torturing John and Carol. The two engage in some Teutonic fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011 All Rights Reserved, until Hal summons the power of the Master Race and beats Guy down. Having won... It's Nazis. What do you expect? <laughs> hey, yeah. <laughs> Having won, Hal releases Carol from the swastika that she was bound to, of course, but it again, but is again denied of any super happy fun time by the arrival of Karelia. The victorious secret sovereign tells Hal that she was trying to keep the dream alive, and the voices in the ring concur with her statement. Carol tries to convince him that the Karelia and the ring are evil, and that he needs to fight for the truth. But before Hal can be completely swayed, Karelia reveals herself to be the, ma the magical demon from the beginning of the book. The demon tries to corrupt Hal since the power of the ring essentially comes from her, but thanks to a well-placed arrow fired by Jon Stewart, the demon explodes from the impact of the iron arrowhead. Crisis averted, Guy Gardner awakens to the aftermath, with Hal proclaiming that the dream is dead. Guy, however, begs to differ as he grabs the arrow and plunges it into Hal's gut, killing him and transferring his soul into the power ring. Enraged, Carol leaps at Hal's murderer while Jon Stewart removes the ring from Hal's cold, dead finger and places it on his own, becoming the Green Lantern. 
Despite the ring's protestations of him being unworthy to wield it, John puts up a valiant fight against Guy, eventually draining the souls of Guy's ring into his. And with Guy powerless and defeated, John and Carol head off to start a new age of hope and freedom for all mankind. Okay, I I will admit I made some references to Blazing Saddles in there. I couldn't <laughs> help it, and I apologize the the whole Schnitzengruben thing. But and, don't, don't apologize for referencing Blazing Saddles. That well, that's true because bl- anytime you could put Blazing Saddles into a commentary or a podcast or anything, mm-hmm. it's always a good thing. Um, I really enjoyed this issue. Yeah, it's it's one of these things that's kind of controversial. I mean. When you're talking about Nazism and, you know, making your heroes essentially Nazis, it makes it for a really awkward read. But even despite the fact that Hal and Guy are essentially analogs for Nazis, I thought it was an enjoyable an enjoyable book. Yeah, I agree. Uh and I want to be really clear that I did enjoy the book. Um, it was an interesting read, and I walked away feeling, you know, satisfied and entertained. But it still kind of felt like it was missing something that I couldn't quite put my finger on that just kept it from being great. And I narrowed it down to, to two kind of general points that kind of cover all my notes. I mean, I have more specific notes later. But um, one, it's kind of confusing who we're supposed to be cheering for here. Because Guy and Hal are both Nazis. John seems to be set up as a protagonist, but he's not really a major part of the story. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. And then the other thing is, there's a lot going on in the story, and they had to rush through a bunch of it, and at times, kind of just do a quick jump from thing to thing. And it, it, it didn't really feel like sloppy storytelling so much, but more like they needed an- another you know, 20 or so pages to really make it sing. Yeah, I agree with you. It would it took a couple of read through a couple of reads through for me mm-hmm. to get exactly who was supposed to be the protagonist in this book. Was it Hal who was wielding the ring that Himmler originally created at the beginning of the book to promote Nazism, which I guess eventually led the world to be overrun by the Nazis? Or is it Guy? who's got the ring of the Green Lanterns, who's trying to reclaim the original Himmler ring? Or is it John, who is essentially a uh, Green Arrow analog in the book? You know, it is it is kind of difficult to define who the hero is supposed to be. Yeah. And it does feel like it is lack. It, it would have been served much better if the story could have been a bit longer. I agree with you there. Um. Going into the book, we'll start at, start off with the cover. Um, it's all right. I mean, you can tell who the characters are, but you know, it's just one of those things. It, it, it's 
the whole idea of your favorite heroes suddenly being portrayed as Nazis is just kind of one of those things that I just can't get behind and say, yeah, I really like this because it has such sort of really awkward connotations. Well, it's off-putting and it should be. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and I think that's what I think that's what Elseworlds, you know, uh, strove to be. And I think this is a good example of it being interesting, you know, taking the characters in a different direction, but not being, you know, because I've heard there's some been some pretty bad Elseworlds one. The oh, one, yeah. uh, I'm trying to remember the one the the one where Batman got the uh, Green Lantern ring. I heard that was not very good at all. Like in black. Yeah, it's called In Blackest Night, and yeah. I haven't read that. You know, I I've, I I remember someone or did in a Darkest review. Night. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And you know, I heard someone review it and said, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and I think Professor Allen and Trentus Magnus uh, covered that on his one of his shows. They were talking about the Elseworld stories, and I don't think they were too kind about it. But hmm. this one was actually good. I think it takes the Elseworld concept of sort of turning the DC universe on its head and uh, telling different stories. And it does a good job with it here. Yeah. And I thought it was a nice cover and it was a good way to get all three characters on front again. You know, it looks like from the cover that John is our lead character, but he's not really in a story that much. So no. again, I was kind of confused. No, I agree. Um, but the important thing is, is it got me interested in, in the story. So it did what it was supposed to do. Mm hmm. Uh, my next note is on page three where the alien being or the demonic being transfers the power into the ring with the SS symbol. And they mention that the SS symbol has the uh, sigil of Wotan, which I, I think is a Dr. Fate villain. And I don't know if the SS symbol is in any way tied to Wotan and Dr. Fate, but I I I think this would be a question probably better answered if Shag were listening, maybe yeah. if Shag is listening. <laughs> yeah, we'll well, get... I I did a little research, and by did a little research, I mean I looked up on Wikipedia mm -hmm. uh, Heinrich Himmler's entry, and apparently, according to that, he was really into mysticism and symbolism, and that entry even credits him for choosing this double lightning bolt insignia, which is apparently some sort of ancient rune originally, to be a symbol of the SS. Now that makes sense because I know that the Nazi, you know, the Nazis and Himmler and to some extent Hitler were very steeped in the occult and were very interested yeah. in using the occult to try and help them, you know, overcome, uh, overcome, you know, the allied forces during World War II. And we see that in not only in fiction like uh, Raider of the Lost Ark and the JSA stories and all that, but we also see it. In, in real life that he actually had searching for these ancient artifacts. So right. It's it's a nice it's a nice addition to the book. Yeah, I like that they can fold in the I mean this is obviously a very fictionalized portrayal of Himmler, but I, I like that they're able to fold in the real people in places because it, it does add an air of um, maybe not believability, but when they start making up characters that are clearly parallels to real people, I think that hurts the story in my opinion. Because I'd rather see a, a fictional portrayal of Adolf Hitler than, you know, Rudolf Hutler <laughs> or whatever. So. Yeah, yeah. Hitler's brother, you know, Skippy Hitler. <laughs> um, Skippy, Skippy Hitler would be okay. Yeah. Um, my next note's on page six. And I guess this is where uh, 
where we have the divergence at the beginning of the divergence because it looks like the United States and the rest of the world were essentially conquered by Hitler and his forces. So Mm -hmm. now the entire world is under a sort of Nazi rule. So uh, that's what sort of makes this Elseworld thing different because obviously they say that Hal Jordan is the flight commander of or the guy Gardner is the field commander of the coast city SS. Mm -hmm. So it's obviously in the United States. So obviously the Nazis won the second world war. Right. My only note for this page was that we get so used to seeing our heroes being good guys. And this kind of ties into what you said earlier, but um, you know, even folks like guy Gardner, when you see them introduced as high ranking members of the SS, it's very, very jarring, but in a good way, but, a way that still makes you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, and they're not necessarily portrayed as evil until a little later on in the book. And right. we'll get to that. That's, that's pretty much my next note. Uh, it comes where they introduce the, the quote unquote green lanterns, which are led of course by Oliver queen. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes complete sense. Yeah. You know, Ollie would be the person railing against the corrupt government, not only in, you know, the the regular DC universe, but also in this Elseworlds DC universe. So I like that that, yeah. that continues on. And the the blending in of Oliver Queen and the Green Arrow stuff really pleased me. Like you said, it makes a lot of sense. And page nine, I guess is that where we're at? Page nine. Yep. Yeah. Page nine, this was a definite holy S dash 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 moment for me. Mm-hmm. The the very last panel where he gets shot in the head. Oh yeah. Uh yeah, and and then you you realize that on the next panel it's Guy who's doing it. Mm-hmm. So so the person that you've been conditioned to believe is your protagonist is suddenly gunning down people right brutally. It's it really makes you look at this character in a different light for this book. And I'm trying to look and see if any of these people are analogs of other characters because I don't see anyone who looks like Speedy or uh, looks like a Black mm. Canary in here. Uh, obviously, it's just uh, Ollie and John. But well, uh, on, on page nine, the first panel, we've got a red-haired guy and a blonde woman. So that yeah, could that, be. That but, could be. That could but be. they're not named, so. Yeah. So that that could be them. That could be kind of an analog there, but it it, it would have been nice if we could have gotten you know hints to other you know archers or members yeah. of Ollie's sort of family. I don't have anything until page thirteen. Yeah, that's that's where my next note is. Go ahead. Page thirteen. It's it's interesting to see what derogatory slang makes it into comics and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted that the S word is of German origin, so I guess it makes sense that they would use it here, but I think in a different story with similar context, you know, if they were to use the N-word, yeah. I, there would be a huge outcry. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's that was their sort of cheat of getting away of using that, because essentially it is, in context, used the same way as the N-word. Right. You know, and it's it's an, it was really uncomfortable. I, you know, I, in my synopsis, I was kind of dancing around it and I only used it once because I wanted to at least say what they were saying on the panel. But yeah, it, it's one of those words that's essentially an analog to a very negative racial, racial epithet. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they got away with it, 
I think is only because it's not it's not an English word. It's it's because it has you know German you know because it's a Germanic word and that's not usually used to describe you know uh, African Americans in a negative way. Right. Uh, I mean, it's used in a de, by Germans to describe them, you know, in that way, but it's not used by, you know, American-speaking people or right. in, you know people who speak English in America. So uh, that was kind of uncomfortable. I was also on this page, the last lantern in that third panel there, the last uh, Green Lantern that they kind of capture, mm-hmm. could possibly pass for an analog of Kyle. I know Kyle had only been around for about five months uh, since this uh, was published, so maybe that could have been him. But I, you know, I, it, but it could also be Cable because he's also got you know that sort of <laughs> leg pouch as well. So. It was the '90s. Everybody had leg 90s. pouches. That's true. Um, Page fourteen. Were you as kind of surprised by this as I was? Yeah, I I was kind of shocked that uh, John and Carol had a thing together. You know, yeah. uh, it I guess it works in the story. Yeah, oh know, yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know that that but she just... would be the one uh, working against the uh, sort of fascist guy and how, but you know it's just it, it also adds to the idea of of the sort of racial problems that they're having in here because this would have been completely and wholly unacceptable in in a Nazi state. I mean, this oh, kind of yeah. would have been punishable by, you know, I, I'm certainly would have been punishable by at least imprisonment because well, you know, you see later in the book that her yeah. house was, you know, confiscated and she was, uh, just for having relationships with John, yeah. you know, a person who wasn't of her same ethnicity. So, yeah, it just really caught me unaware and I should have seen it coming. But it, I don't know, it just really surprised me that I, I didn't see it coming. Mm. And the whole story, really, it, it wasn't one that came off as formulaic, which I think is one of the reasons I did enjoy it so much. Because despite the flaws that I mentioned earlier, you know, it's it's not a, a paint by numbers. No, Elseworlds. No, no, definitely not. It is it is a, it's a very unique storyline. Um, on page fifteen, I just had to comment about this once again. Hal gets picked to be the quote-unquote ring bearer simply because he was closer to Abin than Guy was. So yeah. I thought that was kind of not really a you know kind of a complimentary idea that happened between the original book and this book. Yeah, I think I could have done without this guy being called Abin Strauss. Maybe yeah, a little bit, little bit too much on the on the nose, mm-hmm. but you know. Well. I guess they're trying to to sort of relate it in some way. And, oh yeah, yeah. But yeah. yeah, Abin Strauss is just yeah, it does seem a bit too too heavy-handed. I guess I don't you know after the fight sequence, I don't have any notes until page nineteen, where it's just a comment about we see these weird little lizard pet creatures all around. In fact, you know, there's even a even at the end of the story, there's a little comedic shot with these lizard things. I don't know why they're here and whether there's something that ran through the Elseworlds book, but no. it's just it's just one of these little things that makes it a bit quirky, I guess. They're just like, I guess, 
maybe under things of what did you call her? Oh yeah, Bustier, Hadi Bon Bustier. Hadi Hadi Bon Bustier, yeah. Because she's like a larger of those purple lizard things. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, yeah, she does have that sort of look when she transforms into her kind of demonic self. Yeah. I kind of had a broad note about pages 20 to 27 and, and that this is made up of several scenes, but really a good example of what I mentioned earlier in regards to there being a lot going on and, and just needing more space mm-hmm. because it was, it, you know how at the beginning, beginning of some TV shows, they will recap a previous episode in like two minutes just, yeah. just with a series of quick cuts. That's the, kind of how this feels. Yeah, I can, I can agree with you there. It's, it's the sort of quick synopsis of, you know, last time on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. or last time on 24 or whatever. It, it does have that kind of feel. So it, it does, it does definitely go to your point that this could have been extended by, you know, 10, 15, 20 pages and made a much better story if they could have worked a little bit more into the development of this, uh, of the idea of the ring. So, right. Yeah. Um, on page 21, as we see, you know, see, uh, Strauss or Abin killing Himmler, the whole idea of iron being the weakness for the ring. It's, it's, it's no more goofy a weakness than the color yellow or wood, but right. you know, it, it does kind of, it does kind of limit him in the fact that aren't most I don't know what bullets are made out of. I, you know, I always hear lead, but couldn't people just make iron tipped bullets? And, you know, you basically got an easy way to wipe out, you know, this, this lantern wheeling person. So, yeah, you would think I thought the iron thing was maybe just a nod to the Alan Scott wood. That could be it. That could, that, that could definitely be it. Um, I haven't really commented on the artwork all that much. I, I like the artwork throughout the book. It's not, it does have a very nineties feel, especially guy's uniform. It's the guy's uniform is very, very nineties with the shoulder pads and the yeah. chest plate and everything. But overall the artwork's decent. Yeah. You know, and you, I was going to say it, it is very proto nineties and gets worse as the, not worse, but gets more nineties as the book goes on. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it, it's okay. Well, and as annuals go, annuals usually don't have a very good pedigree of having the best artist on there. You usually, right. usually have the your your A list artist doing the the monthly books, and the annuals usually you get you know your secondary artist to come in and do the annuals. So yeah, it, it, it's it's passable. I don't have a problem with it. You either get like the superstar big name people that come in and do one issue and then they're gone or you get the the i hate to call them b-listers but the second tier folks that don't normally do ongoings yep um my next real quick note is on page 22 after uh strauss is dead and they've defeated all the demons and everything and Hal gets the ring what's Hal's first thought after getting the uh, power ring sex yeah booty call so yeah that's that's the how I know. So, you know, whether he be, you know, the the hero of Earth and the defender of Sector 2814 or or a Nazi guard, his his first idea of getting immeasurable power is to to tap that. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I really don't have that 
that many yeah. nodes. I have nothing else until page 32. Yeah, same here. I think my my note on page 32 is that uh, John, or Guy is pretty... You know, Guy is using an error. You know, first of all, having Carol and John in their weird bondage suits now. Mm, yeah. Uh, that's... I don't know why they're in leather bikinis and straps around whatever but they're tied to spiked cru- uh, swastikas i'd say mm-hmm. crucifixes and then on that first panel guy's shooting arrows at him and he uh, shoots an arrow in john's right leg and says something about maybe wanting to shoot him in the junk <laughs> i'm like damn <laughs> how can you make this character less likable right but uh, yeah, that was, well, there, was there was a scene where he was kicking puppies. <laughs> That's true. But, but they had to cut that out. Yeah, that was part of the extra twenty pages there. Yes, in there, there's there like three pages of him kicking puppies. It, it it wouldn't have it wouldn't have furthered the plot, but it would have <laughs> developed his character as an evil person. Uh, I thought it was interesting seeing the juxtaposition of Hal with the yellow ring and Guy with the green ring. Yeah, even more so because. Of these two, I presume we're supposed to be pulling for Hal at this point, mm-hmm. even though they're both Nazis. I, Again, I don't know. Yeah, and I, I, I do like that the constructs that they use are very much are, – are, are drawing heavily from Nazi uh, ideals, like yeah. the, uh, the, the sort of shurikens that uh, Guy fires at Hal are very much swastika – looking mm-hmm. uh the swords and guns that they use to create look very much like uh german rapiers or uh what is it the 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 luger type pistol so yeah and you know it's it's an interesting fight but after that it's just a uh, kind of a big fight sequence yeah i have nothing else till page 46 okay go ahead with that just that john puts on a yellow ring and becomes a green lantern not mm-hmm. really sure how that works. Wizards? I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, it. I do like the fact that that the ring that essentially was based on the souls of these Nazis who did feel that racial purity was the most important thing possible mm-hmm. would be telling John that he wasn't worthy to wield this power. And it, it shows that John has a greater willpower that he's able to manipulate these, these souls or this energy to do his bidding, despite the fact that they would be completely and utterly opposed to him being the wielder of it. So it just, it says, it says a lot about John's character. One thing that I want to say, um, I'm trying to say on page 43, couple of pages back john is rocking the billy d williams mustache there i don't you know i yes. guess that's you know he's looking for a he, he's hoping that you know they'll enjoy their stay in cloud city but <laughs> um yeah i really don't have very many other notes for this it was a good issue um yeah. uh, like i said much better than obviously the eclipso one and significantly better than the bloodlines one but I, I'm look, you know, I I haven't been disappointed. Well, I haven't, I've been more engaged with this issue despite its very awkward feel. I mean, dealing with Nazism and dealing your hero, dealing with your heroes as Nazis is 
always kind of difficult, but it was, in general, a pretty fun read. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, Michael, I've got to say that I really appreciate you coming to the show. Oh, um, thank you for having me. No problem. We have talked about doing some stuff later on, and we will probably be letting you people know about that later. But uh, I'd like you to go ahead and tell people where they can find you on the Internet and what kind of things you're doing out there. Well, my pretty much my only ongoing project right now is my Superman and Batman podcast, which you can find at greatcrypton.com. And I, that's a blog. I post other things there from time to time, but most it's just a podcast these days. So, And it's a wonderful podcast. I've got to tell you Thank that you. it's still, like I've said before, you have an immeasurably fun sense of humor. Your synopses are great. I just, I, I love listening to the show. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you, you back. And, it, it, you know, the world's finest stuff is just fun. Yeah. It's fun to read. Even even the stuff when it's not so good, it's still fun. So Yeah. We um we were talking about the ads in the last issue and we had the Three Musketeers candy bar ad. Um it the episode should be out by the time this episode hits. Um I covered an episode or an, an issue of World's Finest that dealt with the Three Musketeers from the oh, Silver Age. Nice. So not the candy bar? No, no, no. The, the actual, the actual well, yeah. Okay. The quote-unquote real Three Musketeers. Okay. Was there an African-American member or? No. Well, it was it was the 60s. Okay, they yeah. Oh, They didn't have African-Americans in the yes, 60s. Yes, there, there so. were no African-Americans right. in comics in the 60s. That makes sense. <sighs> oh, well. Well, Michael, again, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. And everyone, thank you for listening, and be sure to come back next time for issue 115 of Green Lantern and another annual, I guess, annual number four. So we'll be doing that in seven days, folks. Until then, I hope you guys have a good weekend, and we'll catch you later for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a member of the Two True Freaks family of podcasts. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast.
I don't really have any notes, you know, after Before the fight. we go on, my neighbors are cutting their grass. Is that... No, actually, I can't out? hear anything. Oh, okay. Okay. It's, it sounds fine. Okay. Mark Miller, like, he wrote the Superman book, but it was before he became, you know... Mark Miller. Right. So... Well, that's cool. Yeah, in fact, um, when we did that uh, Three of a Kind storyline with uh, Flash and Green Lantern and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Green Arrow, uh, with Mike Bailey and... Uh, Walker. Dave Walker came on. Yeah, that was one of the, that was like uh, Grant Morrison and Mark Miller on the same book. And I was like, what kind of <laughs> messed up world is that? Yeah. Where, where these two guys are, you know, writing a traditional Flash book and not, you know, being holes or, you know, crackheads. Yeah. Uh, times change. I guess so. I'm really glad we got the Firestorm knockoff out of the way. Mm-hmm. I, I really wanted to put that in my notes, but I didn't because I just thought it would be too snarky. Well, it it, it, it it annoys me that he looks so much like a Firestorm design at a time when they weren't using Firestorm. Mm-hmm. And I'm certain, yeah, it is kind of disappointing, but you know, because it, I, I felt the Ron Mars era of Green Lantern has not really had that many great villains. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, Effigy and Fatality are perhaps the best villains that came out of this run. And unfortunately, Effigy is just, yeah, a Firestorm knockoff. You know, except except instead of being able to manipulate the elements, he's got sort of construct powers that use fire. Yeah. 